1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. 1 Kings 17, that's right after 1 and 2 Samuel and the book of 1 Kings. We're going to begin here with verse 1. It's quite a long passage. We've got a lot to deal with today, so let's jump right in. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came up to came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may drink? And she was going to get it. As she was going to get it, he said, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil, olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as just as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. I'm sure you're familiar with a very sad story that was occurring in Texas where Botham Jean was killed by Amber Geiger, the off-duty police officer walked into what she believed to be her apartment and shot Botham. She was convicted this week and sentenced to 10 years in jail. And by now, I'm sure that many of you have seen that heart-wrenching video, the story of Botham's brother, whose name was Brant, delivering a courtroom speech of love. He forgave Amber Geiger. He challenged her to seek Christ. And then he gave her a hug. It was an extraordinary act of uh, an indication of the compassion and the grace of God. What fewer people may know is that shortly thereafter, the judge, Judge Tammy Kemp, stepped down from her bench, turned to John 3.16, gave Amber her very personal Bible, and said to her, start here, start with this. And then she too embraced Amber. There were two people that day in the midst of darkness and hurt and let's call it what it was, evil, 
There were questions about racism in society, but two people chose to stand up prophetically and just overflowed with the love of God. Those acts of forgiveness and compassion have shocked the world. The world doesn't quite understand this, and so maybe understandably some are criticizing Brandt, declaring it was sweeping away the issues of racism. They're chastising just, uh, Judge Kemp. What about the separation of church and state? Yet I believe that these two amazing people are prophetic examples of living out faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about a prophet and living prophetically. This morning, we're beginning a series of messages on the life of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a prophet who was called to live out his faith boldly, if not sometimes reluctantly, during a very dark time in Israel's history. Charles Swindoll, that great preacher, called him God's bolt of lightning. Because in the darkest days of King Ahab's rule, Elijah just suddenly out of nowhere appears, and then even more mysteriously, he disappears into the sky. But sandwiched in between his entrance and his exit, he leaves a mark etched in his day. Now, I believe that Elijah is an important person for us to study. He's important because he's mentioned in the New Testament some 27 times, more than any other Old Testament character. You remember that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was seen with two men dressed in white. And you remember who that was. There was Moses, Moses who represented the law, and on the other side was Elijah, and he represented the prophets. Yet I think what we're going to discover as we look at the life of Elijah is that he was not a super spiritual saint. James 5.17, in fact, says that Elijah was just a man as we are. He was just human. He was frail and imperfect. He was subject to the same temptations and the same depressions that many of you face. F.B. Meyer suggests that in many ways, the Old Testament heroes were often worse off than we are because they did not have the full revelation of God's will. But yet God used Elijah. And I find that to be kind of encouraging because, you know, are there any imperfect people in this room? Uh, probably standing on the, the platform especially, maybe God can use me too. Because I'll tell you this, God needs some prophets today. Not just preachers, but he needs people who are going to stand up with courage and stand against evil, who will tell the truth and live out radically the love of God regardless of the consequences. But, but this is what we're going to see today. And this is where I'm asking for your patience because stick with me. Before God used Elijah, he put him through a series of tests. And, and if you don't understand that God may in fact test you before he uses you, it can be very disillusioning. It can be very disappointing. So this is a reality we need to understand that God, before he uses you, may in fact test you. Now, as we meet Elijah, he emerges on the scene when Ahab was the king of Israel. 1 Kings 16, the chapter before the one we just read, tells us that Ahab ruled Israel for 22 years, 
And the verse 30 tells us that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. King Ahab was, was Jewish, but he also was shown to be very much a paper tiger. There was nothing really behind him. And so Ahab marries a very strong and despicable woman, and you might remember her name. Her name was Jezebel. Now, I just hear that name, and I think of, of, of something scary. It's something sinister. Jezebel. Jezebel is the daughter of a neighboring king, the king of Sidon. Trying to consolidate his power, trying to, to buttress his royal credentials, despite God's warning not to marry other people of pagan nations, he decides he's above all that. And so he marries Jezebel, who is a committed worshiper of the pagan god Baal. Now what you need to know about Baal is, is in that day, he was considered to be the god of fertility. The, the god of rain and the god of storm. You can imagine, if you're a farmer, and most people in that day were, in Israel, if you were a farmer, be very tempting. I want to be on the right side of this god. I want to make sure that my crops are good. I want to make sure that the harvest is plentiful. And Ahab, in order to placate his wife, remember, he's kind of a weakling in his own spirit, he, he builds a temple to Baal in Samaria. And then he begins to put up Asherah poles all throughout Israel. In 1 Kings 14, we're told that, that Asherah poles represented Baal. And so, so people were worshiping and going to these, these places to worship Baal all over Israel. And then, what, which had to be the final straw, he builds an altar to Baal in the holy temple right in Jerusalem. Now, Baal worshiped often included all kinds of detestable things. For instance, human sacrifice was often involved, especially child sacrifice. It often involved drunken orgies and uh, tem uh, prostitution in, in the temples. So you can imagine, in some ways, it became very popular. You want, to, you want to make sure you have a good harvest, you go to worship, you have these temple prostitutes, these drunken orgies. People were coming by the, by the loads full. And, and of course, this was detestable to a holy God. 1 Kings 16, verse 33 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of God of Israel to anger than had all the kings before him. So in the midst of this moral cesspool, steps a man, and of course his name is Elijah. J. Oswald Sanders in his book Spiritual Manpower says that when wickedness develops into extraordinary proportions, God meets it with extraordinary measures. So Jezebel and Ahab are working together to challenge the very existence of Jehovah in Israel, but Elijah is God's answer. Now, what do we know about Elijah? We know that he was born around 900 B.C. in a remote village called Tishba in the hill country east of Jordan. Now, we don't know much about Tishba, but it was in Gilead, and, and of course that was a mountainous territory. So we know that Elijah was of the hill country. He was a hillbilly in a sense. He, he spoke with an accent, and we know that in Gilead they spoke with a different little accent than most of other in Israel. And, and, and the other thing I think you'd notice about Elijah is that you get the feeling that he was more of an introvert. He preferred to be alone rather than to be around other people. We also know his name. 
the name Elijah meant that Jehovah is my God or Jehovah is God. And if you think about it, that alone explains why Jezebel would have hated him because every time she heard his name, she would be reminded of that religion that she felt like repressed and was ignorant and she despised. His name was a threat to her power. Now in 1 Kings 17, all of a sudden, without any introduction, we just see Elijah show up. But in this chapter of introduction, in chapter 17, we see four different snapshots, if you will, where God, I believe, is training up Elijah for future service. So let's go through those snapshots together. The first snapshot is his initial confrontation with King Ahab, and we see that in verse 1. Now I want you to think about that setting. Now, anytime an ordinary person is called upon to stand before a person of power, that's got to be an intimidating experience. Remember when Moses was called to preach before Pharaoh, he said, oh no, not me. Imagine if you were called to go and confront the president of the United States at the White House. That would be a fearful experience. But right out of the gate, this country bumpkin from the hills with a backward accent and no sense of royal protocol is called upon to speak to the king. So this was a test of courage. Now, have you ever been called to do something that you're afraid to do? Courage is not the absence of fear. My goodness, if you don't have any fear, then you don't need courage. Courage is being afraid, but doing it anyway. Napoleon often referred to Marshal Nye as the most courageous person he had ever met. Yet the stories were told that Nye's knees trembled so badly, often before a battle, he could barely mount his horse. One time he was finally able to get on his saddle, and it was reported that Nye looked down at his knees and with contempt shouted, Shake away, you knees. You'd shake even worse if you knew where I was taking you. <laughs> That's kind of courage, to be afraid, and yet to go ahead anyway. Now, it's one, thing to, it's one thing to go before the king, but even worse than that, Elijah had bad news. He says, king, it's not going to rain until I say so. There's not going to be even so much as dew on the ground until I say so. Elijah is saying to Ahab, because you have permitted this worship of a false idol, of a false god in the land of God, there's not going to be any rain until God says. Now, I want you to think about what that looked like. Uh, to understand this, it would be like if a prophet came to us and said, listen, there's not going to be any more fuel. There's not going to be any more gas, electricity going on in, in, in your, your country now. So the, the economy would collapse People would lose their jobs. Everything would come to a halt sooner or later. Imagine what that would be like. That was the message that Elijah delivered to the king. Now, I've got to tell you, delivering bad news is not easy. I don't like to do it, and I've had to. For instance, Michigan fans, I have bad news for you. Man, I watched that game yesterday. You're not going to make it to the college football playoff. You're not going to win the Big Ten. And you're certainly not going to beat Ohio State at the end of the season. 
Pastor Dave uh, introduced to you Jerry Freed, yeah, and he told you about how Jerry is a big spam fan. You know, he has all the spam he can get. Jerry is also a Michigan fan, uh, to believe it or not. Jerry told me uh, he had two tickets to the next Michigan upcoming game. He accidentally left those tickets on the dashboard of his car. Last night, someone broke into his car and left him two more tickets. <laughs> That's... That's how bad it is. Just, it's really bad. Now, the second scene is Elijah's seclusion at the Kareth Ravine. In, in verse 2, God tells Elijah to go to an isolated valley east of the Jordan. Now, this is a guy of the hills. He's a guy who knows mountains, but he's called to go somewhere else. Have you, have you ever thought about how often God will take someone and say, okay, I want you to go away and get away from everybody and everything. He draws them to conclusion or seclusion. Think about Moses, 40 years in the pasture fields, or David pasturing in the fields with the sheep. John the Baptist eating honey and locusts in the wilderness. Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The Apostle Paul spent three years in the wilderness before he began his ministry. Now, most people would feel very uncomfortable with this idea of being called to be alone for so long. Now, the idea of being separated from people and his home was, was more than just a hiding. I think God had a purpose there. I think God wanted to do some training. The word careth, means to cut off, or to cut down, or to file. And I think God was cutting down Elijah, cutting out all the enjoyments, all the distractions, all the other involvements, and he was going to file his servant down to be whom he wanted him to be. And so for Elijah, I think this was a test of obedience. Elijah obeys, and he goes to the Kareth Valley, and his isolation is, in fact, so complete, he doesn't go to the restaurant, he doesn't go to the grocery for food because no one is close. No, he relies on ravens, bringing him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and, of course, he has water by a brook. Now, for some of you who like camping, like Dave, maybe that sounds kind of neat. But I want you to think about what those birds must have meant, that, those scavenger birds. How did they get that meat, and how did they find that bread? And It probably wasn't all that pleasant of an experience. I don't think this is uh, you know, like the Ritz and, and room service like that. But Elijah, in the process, was learning something about God. He was learning that God could be trusted, that when you have nothing... God provides. He was learning lessons in the shadows far away from the public that God would call on again and again. Makes me think about the summer after I graduated college. I went up to Indiana where uh, I was getting ready for seminary to start in the fall, but I was pastoring at New Hope Community Church in New Washington, Indiana. And so I needed a place to stay, and one of the little ladies at the church, a beautiful lady, uh, offered to give me her cottage for the summer. And so I, 
I stayed in that cottage. It was right along the Ohio River. It was a really quaint little place, but it was kind of rustic, rather rugged, to be honest with you. It was beautiful, and in the summer it worked fine, but it had no heat, and it had no running hot water either. So if I wanted any hot water, I had to heat it up on the stove. It was an especially cool summer, and the evenings were especially cold, so if I wanted any heat, I had to open the oven and just get heat that way. It was that kind of a, an experience. But the, the hardest thing for me was is there were days when I didn't speak to a single person except down the road, there, two miles down the road, I'd take a daily walk down to Bethlehem, Indiana. They kept a little post office open there because people like to send their Christmas cards from Bethlehem, Indiana. And they had about an 85-year-old lady who, who ran the post office. And every day I'd walk down there and we'd have a little conversation. And sometimes that was the only conversation I'd have for days. Now, I remember, however, the sweet times of communion I had with God in those moments. But when there was nobody else, I discovered there was him. I remember some of the sweetest moments of worship I probably ever experienced right there on the banks of the Ohio River singing how great thou art. Just remind, it just brings me chills to think about those moments. Now, there are moments when God just calls you away because he, he wants you to be with him. You know, my friend, this morning, I suspect there are some here. If God has called you to be alone with him, even though that may be difficult and hard, it can also be incredibly life-giving. Listen, if God isolates you, it's often because he's jealous for you. He, he wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. And there can be joy, real joy, in that. Now, the third snapshot, it seems to me, is that he has this encounter with a widow, poor and desperate. Verse 7 tells us that a brook that he was relying on dries up. You see the drought that, of course, eventually affected Ahab now has affected Elijah. And it's interesting to me, did you note where God tells Elijah to go? He says, go to Zarephath in Sidon. Now, you remember what, what's special about Sidon? Sidon is the home of Jezebel, interestingly enough. Zarephath means to smelt or refine. And I believe that God wanted to further refine Elijah, so he took him to the very heart of the land where Baal was worshipped and where Baal worship had originated and where it was being promoted the most to prove his power. And so verse 9 says, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So now you have this proud man who has to depend on a poor widow who's poverty-stricken and ready to die herself, and he depends on her to feed him. I think this test was one of humility. Let me tell you something this morning, folks. The Bible is very clear. God despises the proud and gives grace to the humble. One of the great tragedies of our current political climate, it seems to me, is the lack of humility. I believe there's a judgment that comes when we experience all this pride that we see within our political system. But of course, it's not just in the political realm. It's very often 
in the churches. We boast about our buildings, or we talk about our attendance, and we even boast about our theology and the way we're different from others. I remind you that Paul, the apostle, had this attitude. I think he, he got it from Jesus himself, but he said this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. God's people are to be humble people. Elijah would do a lot of great things. He had to know who the power was behind it. The final snapshot I want to just share with you, I think, begins in verse 13. Elijah says to this woman, who, by the way, if you see this very clearly, she's down to her last, last bit of bread and flour. She's, she, she thinks she's going to die very, very soon. But Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and for your son. Elijah says to her, listen, you can trust me. There will be enough. Now, one of the things I think you have to note here, and, and I just offer this as kind of an aside, but notice how God always calls people to give him the first, even when things are tough, because he will provide the rest. We see that principle right here. You may not look like you have a lot, but God says, give me a portion of that, put me first, and I will provide everything else. We see that principle working out here. And we see that this woman obeys Elijah, and miraculously, she begins to see God's power. Miraculously, there is enough food every day for Elijah, for her, and for her son. In fact, the text says she was feeding her family. It must, it must have been like she was having people over often. It wasn't just enough for her son. It was enough for many. They would pour out the oil in the jar, and there would be more. They would pour out the flour, and there would be more. Every day, there was more. Every meal was a miracle. I believe the Lord wants to do the same thing for his people. He can do the same thing for you and for me. Psalm 37, 25 says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Listen, the scripture says if you trust the Lord and if you're walking with him and you put him first in your life, it does not necessarily mean that God is going to make you rich. But he will see to it that you have enough. And by the way, we have to learn to be content with enough. And sometimes that's where our problem is. I mean, don't you think that maybe you got tired of flour and oil and just a little bit of bread? Maybe felt like, eh, you know, why don't we have pizza or something else tonight? But it was enough. It was a test of God's provision. So what do we do with these snapshots that I've given you? Are there some lessons? And I think there are many, but I just want to outline uh, three or four for us this morning. And I think the, the first lesson is simple. We've already talked about this, but God uses ordinary people. You be willing to be used. Did you notice here that God didn't call an army? God seldom uses the aristocracy or the famous or the wealthy. 
God, there's something about our Lord that just loves to use ordinary people to do his bidding. He loves to use the common people, even unimpressive people. I think about Jesus. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53? He said he had no beauty or majesty that we would be attracted to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Of course, our, our problem is often we're always thinking that, you know, we're not quite as spiritual as the other person. They're more spiritual than us. God will use them, but he can't use me. We think that others are more spiritual than we are. I heard about a man who saw a sign on a farm that read, cow for sale, very productive. So the man stopped and said, well, hey, I'd, I'd like to see and even buy that cow, but how do I know that she gives a lot of milk? I, I've got four children and I don't have much money. I want to make sure that I'm making a good investment. Well, the farmer said, well, sir, I'm a deacon in the Baptist church. And so the man said, well, that's good enough for me. I'll, I'll take the cow. He said, but I, I don't have any money today, but I'll take the cow and I'll come back and pay you tomorrow. The farmer said, well, wait a minute here. How do I know that you're honest and that you will come back with the money? Well, I'm an elder in the Friends Church. The, the farmer said, well, I guess that's good enough for me. You can take it. Well, later, the farmer got to thinking about that. And that night, he said to his wife, what is an elder in the Friends Church? And his wife said, well, an elder in the French church is kind of like a deacon in the Baptist church. Why? What's the matter? And the farmer looked at her and said, I think I just lost a cow. <laughs> That's not a ha-ha necessarily funny, but I think there's some truth there. Sometimes we think other people are more spiritual. We, we forget that God wants us to be holy. God wants us to be true, that he can use us. The second lesson is this. God prepares often people in seclusion be willing to go there. This is hard. Listen, if God calls you only to himself, and by the way, if that's all he calls you to, still okay. God wants to do something in you before he will do something through you. To know him first, however, is always his priority. He always wants to know you. He loves you. The Bible says he is jealous for you. He wants you to have a relationship with him before you start worrying about telling others about him. Make sure you know him first. You can't talk about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life unless you experience the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But the Bible says he who is faithful in a little will become responsible for much. So God may call you to, to be secluded, to be alone. It may be hard, but be willing to go there. And thirdly, I'd say this. The third lesson is a dried up brook is in fact often a sign of God's approval. You, you be obedient. The, the brook dried up, the Bible says. Ahab's brook dried up too, but Elijah was experiencing all that everyone else was going through. And listen to me, you may go through a difficult, difficult time. You may go through those dry brook experiences. It doesn't mean that God is punishing you. In fact, maybe it means he's trusting you and he's testing you and he wants you to, to trust him. You continue to be faithful. You continue to be obedient. You don't give up. Even though the brook dried up, 
And that maybe leads to the last lesson. The fourth one is this. God's provision often comes one day at a time. You keep trusting. You keep trusting. Listen, Elijah means so much to me, and maybe he will become that for you as I consider his example again and again. He was the kind of guy who never knew what was going to happen next. He, he confronts Ahab, and suddenly the Lord says, I want you to go to this ravine all by yourself. He goes, and he's fed day after day with the, the ravens, but the brook dries up, and so the Lord sends him to go to Zarephath where he has some oil and flour that God provides every day. Not too much. It might not be too great, but it was enough. And a lot of people would look at Elijah and say, you know what, boy, look at all the difficulty and tough stuff that Elijah went through. I don't want that. And yes, you could look at his life that way. Or you could say, wow, look how God was there each and every day, every day proving himself over and over and over again each step of the way. You know, if you'd look at your life with the right perspective, you'd see, you can, you can feel bad for yourself. You can say, oh my goodness, all I'm eating is this flour and oil and all I've got are these ravens dropping these pieces of meat around. And you can feel sorry for yourself or you can look through the perspective of what God is doing and you can say, wow, every day I'm still here. God is still doing something. I know him better than I did yesterday. And I'm growing in my faith in him. And I believe that God's going to use me when that time comes. So this morning, I invite you. This is a simple invitation. Will you trust him wherever you are? If you're in the ravine and the brook dries up, if you're in Sidon and it looks like paganism is winning out, will you still trust him? And if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says he is the bread of life. This is the only bread. You really need and you can have it today you can say yes lord i need him i need him desperately because i'm dying and be like that woman and you obey the call of god this invitation and a miracle happens and the miracle is not only for you it becomes a miracle for your family god's grace is real are you willing and ready as we go through this series to be used by god i'm going to be god's man i'm going to be god's woman in this world no matter the cost, I'm going to trust him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this, uh, this message and the ministry of Elijah. I pray that, Lord, we would glean much as we study his life together over these next few weeks. And that, Lord, you would teach us that when we're in the valley, when the brook dries up, when it seems like we're all alone, when we're, we're facing hardship, we would see the evidence that you're right there and that Lord those times of testing we would be found to be faithful and true and that Lord you would teach us so that Lord when when your time when our time comes when we're called out Lord we would be faithful prophets in a dark world and Lord that we would enjoy this opportunity to know you better we confess right now that you are a faithful God and we trust you with our very lives we ask this all in Jesus name Amen